Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hello, folks, and welcome back to season six of the show. This is episode number 126. Welcome to it. My guest today is an incredible drummer who lives and works here in Nashville, Fred Eltringham. And I hope everyone's doing well out there and getting back to work in some sort of normal capacity. If you're a musician, I am heading out to play the Edmonton Folk Festival with my band this week. So if you're in that part of the world, come and say hello. It's one of the great festivals in North America. And I'm really happy to be heading out back there this year. Hopefully we'll make it with all these crazy delays going on. Man, it's a nightmare out there. Aside from that, it's just been a lot of studio work here, sessions and mixing and stuff like that, and the studio's pretty dialed in. So if you want to come and make a record here at the Hen House, drop me a line. All right, so Fred Eltringham is here this week, and he's one of my favorite drummers around town, and he's held down the drum chair in Cheryl Crow's band for the last 10 years or so. I should add that that band is so great, and if you get a chance to see them, I mean, Cheryl's awesome, but the band is really insane, too. It's Fred and Oddly Freed on guitar and Jen Gunderman on keys. The only one I don't know is the bass player, but in any case, they're one of those bands that works for a top-level artist, but they really come across as a band as opposed to a solo artist with a bunch of hired guns. I've had a chance to see them in action a few times, and they're really great. So check them out if you can't. 
And Fred keeps pretty busy here in Nashville when he's not out with Sheryl Crow. He's played on tons of records and on stage with folks like Billy Gibbons, Emmylou Harris, Lucinda Williams. Have you heard that cool series that she did recently? I think it's six or seven volumes now. They're pretty much live in the studio with a wicked band. One is like old school country classics. One is Tom Petty tunes. One is Rolling Stones tunes. I think there's a Dylan one. There's a whole bunch. Um, I think they might only be out on vinyl. And anyway, Fred is on some or if not all of those. Who else? Uh, Willie Nelson, Darius Rucker, Kenny Chesney, Rodney Crowell, Casey Musgraves. The dude has stacked up some serious credits. Anyway, I love to talk to folks like this on the show, maybe slightly under the radar players who are super talented and and, you know, just get to know a little bit about their past to get them where they are now. And Fred's pretty invisible on social media, but he has a website where he posts a few things and some photos and videos that you should check out. And his dates with Cheryl Crow are up there. Uh, if you're ever able to go see them, you can find the dates there. And that is fredeltringhamdrummer.com. So before we get going here, I'd just like to shout out to a couple folks who made donations or signed up to the Patreon over the last couple weeks. They are Steve Kunzman, 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 hopefully got that right, and Margot Greenham. Thanks, you guys. I could not do it without you. And I should also add that um, for Patreon subscribers, at the end of this season, I'm going to be giving away a Union Tube and Transistor uh, reverb pedal and it's very cool it's this crazy it's their first digital pedal and i've been using it a bunch and it's really trippy and cool anyway i'm gonna i've got a brand new one of these sitting here and i'm gonna give it away to a random patreon subscriber at the end of the season so if you sign up you will be enrolled automatically in that groovy contest all right so that's about it let's get down to it this is my conversation with fred eltringham enjoy have you had a lot of covid hit your Cheryl Crow camp? No, not at all. Nobody, uh, nobody in the, no one in the band got it. And um, we had a couple crew members get it. Um, like enough but, to enough to cancel shows and stuff. No, okay. no. I mean, we didn't. You know, we didn't tour during the the major part of it or whatever. Yeah. We kind of waited a long time. But then. Uh, as soon as I guess it was uh, the fall, we started back up. Yeah, and it's it been feels... fine. It was scary, but we got test every day, and you know all that stuff. Yeah, but um, everybody is vaxxed, and we all kind of re- were required to get vaxxed. We lost a couple of crew members because of that. Yeah, I heard uh, your the drum tech guy. I've 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 rented drums off him before, and I I heard he he split. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Clay. It... Clay, that sucks. He, yeah. That guy was awesome, man. What? I know he is awesome. Um, but um, yeah, I know it was so sad. But you know what? Clay was kind of ready to um, to be home. I think anyway, okay. just because he has a son with um, with Down syndrome, and yeah. um, you know his wife works. And, you know, so he's he's been working at Forks, and he's just. I think the road was not not like working for him so much anymore anyway right and we don't we didn't really tour that much I mean, we don't we, we tour every year i've been with cheryl and i for 10 years but we um we, and we tour every year mostly in the summertime and right. um uh because in this in the school during the school year she's a single mom so she's um she's being mommy while yeah. she's <laughs> you know yeah I guess. and i got kids and and that makes my life a lot easier too. <laughs> totally. It's a good 
and I can be, you know, I can be home to do sessions and all that stuff. Like, um, and most of the, most of the people out or in the country world or whatever, uh, are out touring during the summer anyway. Yeah. So like session stuff slows down a little bit during the summer anyway. So except for last year, actually during the lockdown, it was, <laughs> it was insane. Was it? So what was your, what was your, what was your 2020 all about? It was tons of record. Everybody was recording. Yeah. Like we started up, I guess it was in June of last year and, and just everybody just was making records. It was nonstop. So were you doing like, were you, did you have a setup at home or anything or were you just at that point back in the studios in Nashville? Um, I did a lot of stuff from home uh, up to June. Yeah. And I do, I do have a studio at home. And, um, and then it was kind of like a, a mishmash of both, but then it just turned into full on just uh, regular, you know, in-person sessions and full band tracking everybody in their masks and getting tested at sessions or prior to and all that stuff. I've had so many uh, PCR tests now. <laughs> I've had quite a few too. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. I've done, I've did, I did a bit of traveling through the summer as well. And then things kind of like, petered out for me after I did a bunch of stuff in like June, July, August. And then I had a bunch more stuff sort of cancel after that. So it's been a little, it's been a little crazy. Yeah. yeah th thanks for doing this, by the way. I really appreciate it. Um, of course. Uh, in reading some of the stuff that I've found about you, um, I think we were at Berkeley at the same time. Really? I think so. It seems like that. Like uh, I heard you mention that you were there when Abe Laboreal was there, which is like early yeah. 90s. And yeah. that's, when, that's when I was there. So we yeah i got there like i went to community college first after high school i graduated 89 went to community college for a year and then i went to the five-week program the summer after that so it was like 91 or something like that i guess 90 90 91 and then uh and then i stayed for a semester then i went home for another like two semesters and went to the university in my hometown, Westchester, Pennsylvania, then uh, went back to Boston and did another like year and a half at Berkeley. Okay. So, um, and then I just stayed in Boston until 99. So you were, you were there through like 91, two, three ish in and out. Yeah. Of? Okay. Yeah. That's when I was, I was there at the same time. Weird. Yeah, I lived at the Commonwealth Avenue dorm. And I mean, I was playing a lot of like acoustic music. And I don't know, I mean, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings were there at the same time. I was in classes with those guys a bit. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we may have crossed paths at some point. Yeah, I was in the rock scene. So like, yeah, I just started playing in, in like Boston rock bands, like okay. power pop rock bands. Yeah. Um, kind of right away. And that's why I went back, actually, the band I was playing with, they were called Atlas Shrugged. Um, the bass player, Corin, he, he went to Berkeley as well. We met at Berkeley. And, uh, and the keyboard player, Jude Crossan, I don't know if you remember those guys at all, but no. Corin, Corin was in the um, uh, songwriting program at, at Berkeley. Okay. That expanded out into the rock scene, like the, the 90s Boston rock scene. Which was pretty healthy, right? Like there was a lot of shit going on out there with all the clubs. There was a ton of clubs was, and stuff. It was so great. It was such a cool little community of people. 
and been great bands and everybody was making records and touring. We all had our bands and going up and down the East coast and whatever. And some people, you know, got like giant record deals, like letters to Cleo and people like that. I ended up starting playing with this band, um, the Gigolo Ants who were, they were signed to RCA and, um, they had had some success in like England and stuff with a couple songs getting on some TV shows and in movies and stuff. And um, I just started touring around with them and we, we ended up touring really hard. I did that for like six years and um, we just went everywhere and opened for everyone. It was awesome. Yeah. It was such yeah. a. <laughs> did, you, did you get much studio experience in those days or were you just like touring nonstop and that was your thing? I did kind of because, well, actually early on with that band Atlas Shrugged, uh, our sound guy, this dude, Ted Paddock, he, uh, he ran like the um, student uh, work program or whatever in the, uh, in the studios there at Berkeley. And so we would go in at like midnight and record from midnight to 6 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> making, our little, making our little demos and stuff and, uh, and tapes or whatever to hand out at shows. I did a lot and, of that uh, too there. It was yeah. handy. It was awesome. It was incredible. So I did get a lot of experience that while we were doing that. And then, um, you know, we kind of started um, going out to some other like uh, there's Ford Apache was in uh, was a studio in Cambridge where like the Pixies and all those alternative rock bands like Juliana Hatfield and a bunch of cool bands had recorded up there and um, we did a couple things with Paul Coldery there and um, the Gigolo Ants uh, were in the Q Division scene which is another big studio in Boston um, it's producer Mike Deneen. Okay. Um, uh, produced their stuff and he done he had done like Amy Mann and all these other really right. cool bands. And he passed away a few years ago, sadly. He was an incredible, incredible uh producer. He taught me so much. But um yeah, so I did get to do a fair amount. We did a lot of recording as much as we could. It wasn't like session, you know, it wasn't like right. session work. Was you, were, like band you, were, you were in a band and the band went into the studio. Um yeah. do you remember those days as being like some of the things that would have been things that have stuck with you, like as far as how to play the drums effectively, like for tone and for feel in the studio, like it's such a different trip than being a live drummer. Do you yeah. recall that period of time as being like a time when you really kind of started to focus in on that? Or were you just not really worrying too much about the studio side of things at that time? Um, I totally, I, it does. It's, that sort of hit me in the past few years, actually looking back on that. Oh yeah. Working with Mike, especially, he um, he really uh, knew what he was doing. You know, he's <laughs> just a great producer. So, yeah, getting the right you know snare sound, or you know, tuning the toms the right way and the kick drum and muffling stuff the proper way to get the right sound for each song and all that. Um, yeah, that was the beginning of it for me. Was it him that t that taught you a lot of that stuff, or were you kind of versed in that through Berkeley and through? I was not. No, Berkeley. There was not much of that going on. Actually, I did take a. I started taking a studio drumming lab there at Berkeley. Yeah, and uh, I remember the first the first couple of classes. 
there was a bunch of like you know like fusion drummers there because that's people, <laughs> yeah people, they love that stuff there which sure. i was into at the time too i gotta admit and um but i also you know i came out of you know rock rock and roll was my thing you know growing up like that's what i loved like classic rock yeah i remember the teacher smartly put on uh, a beatles record and as an example of great uh, drum sounds, you know, yeah. And all the guys, all the other guys in the class were like laughing, kind of bagging it. on. They were bagging on Ringo and bagging, and I was like, "Fusion Mr. drummers Lab. love to love to bag on Ringo." I know it made me so <laughs> upset. I actually quit. I quit the lab. Really, it was so sad. I was like, "These these are not my people. Yeah. I cannot be in this lab." Um, so. Uh, no, I didn't learn a ton, at, you know, from the Berkeley uh, curriculum or whatever, as far as uh, studio drumming went. So, and I never really like aimed to be a studio drummer, you know, like session right. session drummer or whatever. Yeah, it was not on my list of you know things. I was just thought I was going to be in a rock band, a huge rock band. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? so that, that that was the that was the goal from day one, kind of. <laughs> Yeah, just to be in a massive power pop rock band, you know, right, that was fine. Right. So the session stuff really did not kick into gear until I moved here in like 2007. Like I, okay. I had done, like I'd done a bunch of records and stuff up to then. Actually, the first, first like big record I ever played on was in Boston. It was like that girl, Tracy Bonham. Oh, yeah. She, that was with uh, Paul Coldery and Sean Slade, the guys who did like... Uh, they had mixed some Radiohead record. They did the bands and they did, uh, I think they had mixed the very first uh, Pablo Honey, that first uh, yeah. Radiohead record. And they had done Hole and all this, okay. you know. Heavy huge, hitters. Yeah, some big alternative rock things. So they were producing that and they, Josh Freese played on most of the record, who was, he's, I think he's actually a little younger than me, but he was already like an LA session drummer at that time. And, um, he came in to, to play on that and then they they had a couple more songs to do and i had auditioned for tracy to play with her live but, then, live but didn't yeah get, yeah we didn't get the gig then they called me in the bass player drew parsons um was one of my best friends and we had lived together and that's you know that whole world kind of came together for him through us all being around each other and so they called me in to come uh to play on the last couple tracks and uh how did that, and that record that was awesome it was incredible and that record ended up being like a gold record and everything else that was my very first like uh on the card <laughs> session yep, yep. And, uh, i was like wow that sounds pretty amazing you know but then i never i never thought like well i'm just gonna be a session guy now but so that um, that but, particular experience didn't didn't necessarily lead directly to like a bunch of studio work in la where no, Where, no, okay. I, no. I, I wasn't living in LA. I was in. I was still living in Boston. Oh, you were so. okay. Your path though was you, you lived in Boston for a while, played in those bands, but you did spend time in LA and New York, right? Before you came here, is that right? Did yeah. So like after after I left the Gigolo Ants, I started playing with Juliana Hatfield. So how did that happen? Did you did you quit a, quit that band or that band broke up? And then were you looking for work for a while, or how did the Juliana Hatfield gig come around? Yeah, I left the band. 
Um, I kind of got burnout on it. We had, we had sort of exhausted a lot of our, <laughs> I know the feeling, you know, <laughs> you know, we made a couple records and we had just opened for every, everybody and touring around really hard touring in bands and sharing we like the, the perpetual uh, opening band. Yeah, we were. <laughs> and we were awesome. We were a killer band. When I listened to those records, I go like, man, we were so good. But it was a different time and, you know, and, um, that doesn't happen for everybody, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I kind of, I just was like, I need a break from that. And, you know, I just need to get out. And uh, uh, someone, I forget how I had got recommended to Juliana. Um, somebody in the Boston rock scene, you know, had given her my name or something. Did she go to Berkeley as well? She did go to Berkeley. Yeah. Okay. But I think she was a few years ahead. You didn't know her there. I didn't know her there. Okay. And she grad she actually graduated from Berkeley, I think. Okay. But wow, one of the few. <laughs> I know. It is what it's, it's rare. Yeah. Uh, and she actually she initially called me to do a tour and I said no. Cause I was like, I was ready to go back to school. I I had been accepted to UMass um for their nursing program. I was oh, like, wow. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go into nursing. I'm just gonna go Fuck after this. the normal. I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna have normal life. I was working at this kind of fancy restaurant on Beacon Hill as like a food runner and uh, I was making really good money and all this stuff. And I was already with my, my, my wife, my now wife or then wife too. We got married in 96. We've been together a long time. But, um, so after, after she called me, um, I said no. And then like a couple, maybe a week later, my wife was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you should you should absolutely just take that tour you know was she established at that time or was she like an unknown artist no juliana had already done the um the juliana hatfield three okay. or whatever yep and she had played with the lemon heads playing bass she had already like babies that, that all that stuff. Okay. this was 1999 so mm -hmm. she had already done a ton of stuff but she had a new record out and um her drummer todd Phillips, who was in the Juliana Hatfield band, wasn't able to do it or something. Um, so I called her back and I said, you know, if, if the position's still there, <laughs> I, I'll do it with yeah. my tail between my legs. And she was like, okay, sure, yeah. That was kind of a fluke that, that she hadn't filled the spot or whatever. Oh, yeah, I lucked out. And um, so that was awesome, actually. You know, that uh, The bass player for that was this guy, Josh Latanzi. Um, and the guitar player was John Skibbick, who had been in the Gigolo ass with me. So maybe that's why, maybe that's how I got. John probably, maybe John recommended me. Yeah. And so we had been, we toured around for uh, a few, a bunch of months during that year. And um, Ben Queller was opening for us. Okay. And Josh, the bass player had played with Ben. In, uh, in his in his thing and his solo and actually in Radish Ben's old band and in Ben's solo thing and uh, so we toured around for months I went home and then I decided to move to LA actually and because like what what was drawing you there I think I was just kind of like well I'm gonna go try and make it you know yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna go get out of Boston yeah the the 90s rock scene was sort of uh, dying down a little bit. A lot of the bands had either broken up or 
know, moved on. A lot of people actually had moved to LA. And um, so I was like, all right, well, let's, let's just make a move and see what happens. And my wife is originally from Thousand Oaks, um, California. Okay. Right outside, right, outside, right outside of LA. So we had family there and stuff. And um, so we went there and really struggled. It was a really difficult time. I was really? getting, I was, yeah, I was like, did a couple little little gigs with some people, did some recording. I actually made a connection with the uh, this old friend of mine who um, uh, who recorded some gigolo and stuff. His name is Charlton Pettis. He's a producer. He he by chance lived a few blocks away from where we were living, and he was working with Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears. And so he called me one day. He called me one day and was like, hey, can you come over and play some drums for Kurt? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, so I went over there. And we started working on Kurt's uh, solo record in Charlton's garage. Wow. That actually, that uh, eventually turned into making a whole Tears for Fears record because they re- reunited during that time. And you just and, stayed on board. I, they had me come in and yeah, and play drums on all this, all the stuff that we had kind of demoed up and yeah. Oh, so cool. they were like writing and we were, I kept going back in and doing stuff with that. So I didn't, I never got into like the LA session world at all, but. Um, Why is that? Do you think? I mean, obviously like it's sort of a closed, closed club in a way, uh, but you haven't, well, run into those well, problems that, here. What was it about LA that was just like a closed door for you? Do you think? I don't, well, that early on, like I didn't really, we didn't know, I didn't, I didn't really know a lot of people there at all. So it was just kind of like, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I yeah. was just kind of floundering around. And so that <laughs> happened. And then, um, then I got called by Ben Queller actually called me while we were living in LA. He was in New York and said, hey, I just finished my first solo album. Do you want to come be in my band? Because my drummer bailed on it. And Josh Latanzi, who had been in Juliana's band, was, was going to do that, playing bass. So we were like, thank God, yes. <laughs> we were like, let's get out of here and yeah. go. We would always wanted to live in New York. So how long was your stint in L.A.? Just like a year or something? Or were you there long? That was two, that was two years during okay. that time. Then we moved to New York and did two years there. Um, so I toured with Ben. We went all over the world. It was awesome. He was really big at that time, right? Yeah, his record Shasha did really well. And he was, um, we toured with all the little emo bands that were coming out, you know, Dashboard Confessional and all these cool little indie rock bands and stuff. And actually, I mean, like Kings of Leon did their first tour opening for us. Oh, cool. My morning jacket was yeah. opening for us. Did you play on his records too, or were you just doing the tour? I ended up playing, I played on uh, his second solo record. It's called On My Way. Oh, okay, cool. But during, actually during that time, while we were making that record with Ethan Johns, who's an awesome producer, the Wallflowers, who I had become friends with on the Gigolo Ant, one of those Gigolo Ants tours where we opened for everyone in the world, um, the bass player, the bass player, and I had become really good friends. Greg Richling. He called me up and said, "Hey, um, Mario, our drummer, uh, just quit, and we were wondering if you want to come play with us." And I was like, "Yes, absolutely." <laughs> you know. Did, did you have to quit the Ben Queller gig to 
do that? I did. I, you... okay. I had to quit then. So that was that was sad. It was kind of a drag, and it was really difficult. But um, so I said yes to the Wallflowers gig. At the time, were were they like? Where were they at in their trajectory? Like, was that was that when they were massive, or was that just before? Like, where was no? That this was this was two thousand three. The end of two thousand three. Okay, going going into two thousand four. So I think I played my first shows with them the end of 2003 and uh they had made i think two other records after bringing down the horse which was their massive record right yeah they were just touring you know and, and doing random stuff and, and getting yeah. ready to we're trying to get ready to make another record so when you jump into a new situation like that say the wallflowers where it's a band that it's a bunch of guys that have more or less had probably been playing together for a long time uh there's probably strong personalities there's you know all kinds of stuff to navigate where you're not just like necessarily hired to do a, a gig or a tour but you want to like actually kind of fit into the band i'm guessing so that you continue to yeah like it, at the, it sounds like at this time you were thankful for the work you needed the work and you wanted to keep the work uh yeah what what sort of skills do you think you either had or you had to develop at that point to like manage to fit in and like play the appropriate stuff was there ever any direction in that regard or did you just show up start playing and it fit perfectly uh it was kind of a good it was a really good fit actually i um like we had all we had sort of all become buddies on the road um greg and i the bass player had done some other little recording projects and stuff and I had been able to hang out with Jacob and Rami on some other little things. And so it was kind of like, I already sort of knew him. I didn't really know him, know him, but I, you know, we knew that we all got along pretty well already and I'm super easygoing. <laughs> and so like, you know, I did my homework and I'm, you know, I was a Matt Chamberlain fan already. Yeah. And so like learning those parts was really fun for me and getting to play that music. Like, when I first saw them play, I was like, man, I would love to be in a band like that. You know, that's the kind of band I want to be in. So it was like, it was a, it was a really good fit. You know, it kind of, it just fell together naturally. There wasn't like much like play it this way or, you know, it was kind of right. just like, it was a, it was like, I was sort of eased into the band really, really seamlessly. Tell me about your level of preparedness. Like when you actually showed up how much work had you done to learn all the material and like, you know, where were you at with their repertoire? Uh, well, they probably had just given me like, um, a list of songs to, to learn for, for the next, for the gig coming up yeah. or whatever we had coming up. You know, I think it was some, there was a bunch of shows we were going to play opening for the counting crows or something. Yeah. And, uh, so they probably just gave me a set list of things to learn. And I just, I just went in and, and did it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and went in and played, you know, it's real. Jake hates rehearsing. So like, Perfect. we just went, yeah, we just went into his little studio in his backyard and I probably was overprepared, you know, it was like, yeah. you know, I was like, uh, we probably played through each song once and was like, okay, great. We, we're ready. You know, I was yeah. like, really? Cool. <laughs> and uh, there, it, was, it wasn't a big to do, you know. It was just kind of like 
here we are. We're just a rock band, you know? Yeah. And it was a natural fit for you musically, obviously, like you fit right in there. And, and that seems right up yeah. the alley as far as what you, what you're used to doing. It wasn't a stretch for you probably, but it, it was yeah. a great Absolutely. gig at the time. Yeah. Right? I mean, I was, I was probably nervous and I felt the pressure, of, you know what I mean? Of uh, living up to, to the, to the gig and the music and everything. And I wanted to be great. So, um, so I did my homework. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Matt Chamberlain, who did play on a, on a lot of that earlier Wallflower stuff. Um, yeah. How much of an influence were some of the some of the guys that are like that, like a little older than you, maybe, but that were you know playing in the contemporary bands and stuff like that? Like I'm guessing a lot of your influences were more like in the early rock rock era. Rondo, oh yeah, Bonham, people like that. But who? Yeah. But were there contemporaries that you really looked up to, like Matt? Maybe, yeah. For that world, definitely. I mean, like, uh, yeah, Matt and Josh Reese, the stuff he was doing, and uh, and Abe was, you know, out there doing tons of cool stuff. And um, were you friends with him from Berkeley? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He actually, we, at, when I went to the five week program, um, he was like the first guy drummer there that I saw that I was like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. This guy is amazing. I need to know who he is. You know, he was, a, he was, Noel Redding was doing a clinic at, wow. uh, yeah, which was pretty funny. And um, Abe, it was a bunch of teachers and then Abe playing drums with guys. And um, so right after that, I walked up to the stage after the show and, and introduced myself to him just to tell him how much I instantly loved his drumming and yeah you know and uh and so yeah we got to be buddies it was cool and then you know he started he was he dabbled in the in the boston rock scene too like he played with letters to cleo for a little while well, oh, was he some, okay he did some shows with them and did some recording and stuff um so we got to be pals and we still talk and he's gotten me he's hooked me up with tickets to go see mccartney and stuff and yeah yeah he, He's so sweet, so sweet. And he was actually, he was dating uh, a girl in the performance department who uh, helped me get an audition to get like scholarship to Berkeley and stuff. Oh. So, yeah. And he, he had me sub for him on a couple of things that were like way out of my league. Really? Because like, he can play, he can play everything. Like he's a great jazz drummer everything yeah and so he would be like hey can you cover for me for this rehearsal on this big show and i was like yeah sure and i showed up completely like unprepared and just like oh my god i don't know what the hell i'm doing yeah. trying to sight read these things and going like oh my god what, what am I yeah it was really what's your relationship with jazz like i'm guessing like it from what i know of you you you've grown up playing in, in rock bands all the time at Berkeley. They kind of teach stuff from a jazz perspective, regardless of what style of music you're playing. I assume you've probably listened to jazz through your life. I don't know if you still do or much, but what's, have you played it much? Do you have, did you study it? I did study it and I still love jazz and I listen to it all the time actually. And I, um, I'm a big fan, but, uh, and like when I was little, you know, the most, jazz thing things that i've been turned on to is like buddy rich and that kind of big band sort of you know that whole yep. style or whatever and you know and through modern drummer magazine you get turned on to all these all these guys right but you see tony williams on the cover of 
of Modern Drummer. And he's, you know, well, if you're nine years old or whatever, it doesn't you're gonna really check it out. This guy, like, oh, that guy looks cool. But um, <laughs> I didn't know anything about like bebop or, you know, real avant-garde jazz or any anything until i went to berkeley and i had some really great private instructors who turned me on to all the great jazz stuff and i'm glad they did were there some guys in particular that that influenced you in some way whether it was directly or not oh yeah yeah i mean like tony williams and Mm -hmm. max roach and like art blakey and Elvin Jones, maybe? Elvin, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's so many incredible <laughs> guys. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's still a part of my, um, you know, sort of education. <laughs> I've never played a jazz gig in my life. You know, no one's, yeah. no one's called me to come play a jazz gig. But I still play along to jazz records and stuff just to you like, do. just for fun and just yeah. for practice to keep myself in shape or and just to you know do something different and expand my brain a little bit and you know yeah um but yeah um, i I love jazz music i do yeah that was a pretty exciting time for drums there was a lot of ground being broken and like it sort of developed a new role for itself in that era oh yeah yeah culturally everything it was just like yeah I remember teachers would get upset with me. I said, I'm not, I would say that stuff. And they'd be like, you're a drummer. You, you know, you can do it. You can do it. You're pretty, you're good at jazz. You know, you can, you can swing. You got it. And I'd be like, no, no. And I'm still kind of that way. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but I think it really helps, you know, your swing, you know, it's, it's important for me to have some swing in my playing. I think totally. it's just like, I think it just helps to your feel. And, um, and so, you know, I think it's important for, to to know you know to know about that stuff as a drummer yeah and so how long was your stint with the wallflowers were you were you touring with them for was that years and years it was it was like nine years um crap that's a lot yeah i know it was a long time but we it was kind of like broken up um and because uh people either leaving the band or like different different things happening where um we would just take breaks you know what i mean jacob did a solo record in there somewhere too didn't he We did two solo records we made so we made a record while i was in the band it was a great record with this called rebel sweetheart brendan o'brien in atlanta it was awesome totally incredible that was another great studio learning experience for me can you tell me a bit about that like what it was like working with him and when you say that you did learn some things studio wise like specifically what kind of things were oh, new to you well just like um well he was you know his his production that was such the sound of so many of those rock bands of the 90s that huge uh alt rock scene yeah. like um stone temple pilots and Soundgarden or whatever, you know, Pearl Jam and all those huge. So just the sound of those drums and the way he wanted like the snare drum to sound and stuff like that, just the mm-hmm. open sort of tuning and sort of ringy, but real live and exciting sounding. Yep. Like that, that um, like I learned how to, how to get that sound. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, so how, uh, much of, how much of that is your approach physically versus the microphone technique, say? Well, I sort of kind of played that way anyway, just because coming up through the 90s and, you know, yep. um, that was sort of the, the sound to go for and be a part of. 
to to have you know stuff get out there you know but brendan was just like he was such a great he is such a great producer as far as like making decisions and knowing when something is done and you know knowing when you got the track and knowing what's what parts what things to put on top he's an incredible musician incredible guitar player and keyboard player and just a really smart funny dude just great a great leader really puts you at ease in the session and stuff totally just gets 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 the job done and knows how to make it happen (laughs) he's just like a real producer you know like someone who knows how to to make things happen in the studio he just knows how to do it yeah and uh so that was such a great experience. I mean, and he worked harder than any of us. <laughs> like really? he, he would take he would take the tracks home and like sing on them at night and come back and have all this stuff done and like it was wow. really inspiring. He was so good. What kind of time frame were you were you spending on on a record like that at that time? I guess it took like about a month total or something like that. Oh wow, like okay. Couple we were going down there and staying in Atlanta. You know, I think we did like two weeks of tracking. and Is that where he's based or something? Why Atlanta? Yeah, he was based in Atlanta at the time. Okay. Uh, but now I think he's, he's based in LA. Moved, finally moved to LA. But, but that's where like he did all his Black Crows things yep. and kind of stuff. So our, our key, Rami Jaffe, our keyboard player, um, quit the band. And so we, Jacob wanted to take a hiatus. Mm-hmm. the drag because it was only a few months into this touring and uh i was like okay i had a like a little baby what, and what, what year was it this is around 2005 or something that record came out 2006 i think okay yeah so our first son was like one or no i guess we had two we had both our babies we had two babies at that time <laughs> and so uh I had to find another gig. I was like, I got to do something or else I'm just going to be working at, you know, Costco or whatever, trying to make ends meet. And um, so you're back in LA at this point or were you in Nashville? Yeah, we were back in LA. Okay. I started snooping around to try and find some work and reached out to um, uh, Michael Bland, actually, drummer who played with Prince in the New Power Generation. I met him on a Paul Westerberg tour that the gigolo ants did so you know because we for everybody <laughs> yeah yeah and uh uh me michael and i had hit it off and we were buddies and um so i just emailed him and i said have you heard of any drumming gigs out there that you know i might be good for and he said well he said actually i just turned down a tour with the dixie chicks and i was like oh that could be cool. I didn't really know any of their music. I knew I knew Wide Open Spaces. I had yep. seen that on uh, on VH1, and I was like, "Wow, that's a really great song. I love yep. that song." So I was like, "Okay, cool." And he sent me the tour manager's email. So I emailed the tour manager, and I was like, "Hey, Michael Bland, <laughs> give me your number and or gave me your email address. I'm just checking to see if you guys have found a drummer yet, and yeah, you know, whatever." I play, I'm in the wallflowers at the moment, but I'm kind of looking for something to do while we, we, while we're on hiatus. And, uh, he said, yeah, we haven't found anybody yet. So here's our band leader, David Grissom. Here's his email. Oh, like, like Mellencamp's David Grissom. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. 
he was their band leader okay he's like so send him you know an email and just get it get it going i was like okay cool email david and that went through of like uh about a month of going kind of back and forth david eventually about a couple weeks in told me that that they were going in a different direction. I sent in like a, a package or whatever. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was sending like a little resume, like a resume. I, yeah. like, I, didn't, have, I didn't really even have a resume. I was just kind of like, here's what I've done, you know. I well, know. but at the, but at that point, you had a pretty impressive track record. So there's well, that. Kind of, I guess. But it wasn't, I mean, to me, it wasn't that impressive. It was just kind of like me <laughs> flailing through, you know, whatever, trying to get through life. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is over. Uh, but, and then I thought, well, maybe I have one more avenue in the chicks world where I could possibly still get into this. Because I, I had list, I had checked out more of their music and I was like, man, this could be a really cool thing. It's really, it could be a good fit. I really like a lot of their music. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Who would have been drumming on their records? Uh, Greg Morrow. Played on most of oh, their, okay. and then um, I reached out to Gary Loris from the Jayhawks, who had become a friend um, through the Wallflowers, and I I knew that he had been writing with the Chicks. Okay, and um, so I said, "Hey, Gary, I don't know if there's any way you don't have to do this if you don't want to. <laughs> if you put in a good word for me with the Chicks, you know, just to see." If maybe they would be willing to have me come in and audition or whatever. He's like, absolutely, no problem. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So he called Natalie and said, hey, my, my friend Fred wants to, play, you know, wants to audition for you guys. So they called me up and I went to the village uh, recording studio in Westwood and sat there for an hour or two with Natalie and Marty just talking. Didn't didn't play a single note and (laughs) we just hit it off and had a blast. And two days later, they called me with the gig. You never played? I never played. They had never even seen me play or know shit. They had no idea who I was, like, at all. I mean, of course. And so, <laughs> like, they were like, so show us. I had shown them a couple of Wallflowers videos and stuff or, you know, some songs. Yeah. That, while we were sitting there just kind of goofing around at the studio. And uh, it was just like an easy hang. That's everything, right? Yeah. It's amazing to me in hearing you talk about, like, your path and your trajectory is in that, like, you're a 
you're a poster child for the whole like you know keeping in touch with people and like the hang <laughs> the hang being important like it's it just seems well, like every gig you've ever got has been somebody referring like i mean that, that's how it happens but like really yeah. nothing came out of the blue for you it's all like past friends and connections and meeting people on the road it, it's pretty remarkable yeah. actually yeah that's that's exactly what it was. people i admired and just became pals with on the road just guys you know i was like oh this guy's cool and you know so the Dixie be- Chicks thing, did it? Did you feel like it was a, a process that you had to really kind of nurture, or was it like a quick thing that happened? That was a lot of homework. Yeah. Um, like what was going on? Were they were they auditioning other people or something while they were not really saying what they were looking for? Or? I don't think they had auditioned. Maybe. I mean, I know that I knew that Kenny Aronoff had been up for the gig, oh. and uh, and that they had asked uh, Michael. Because Michael had recorded with them and Kenny through David. And uh, maybe so there Kenny, was... Still... So Kenny Aronoff didn't get the gig? He didn't get the gig. <laughs> but, oh. you know, I mean, there could have been any a number of factors leading into mm-hmm. that. Um, money or whatever. You right. Know, you know, and there, so I don't know for sure. But, like, I got the gig. And I had to do a ton of homework. It was really hard. It was like a lot of songs to learn. I was living in a little two-bedroom, two-bedroom apartment with, you know, I had a little electronic kit set up for practicing. So I would have to go and actually, I would rent out a room at this place in the valley. I forget what it's called now, like a rehearsal place. And I would go in there and just shed these songs. Did they give you a pretty specific list of songs or were you just having to learn their entire catalog? No, they sent me, they eventually... Uh, Grissom called when he called me with the gig. He was like, "All right, I'll send you, uh, I'll send you the songs for the tour, you know, or whatever." Yeah. So there was a, you know, a nice big list of songs to learn, and then we went in and started rehearsing. We rehearsed for a week as the band before they even came in and started singing. Oh, okay, and on a gig like that where it's pretty slick, you know, pop stuff. Are you on? Are you on clicks and stuff like that? Or are, yeah. are they playing to tracks and things like that too, or not really? Yeah, only a couple songs had tracks, maybe two songs had tracks, uh, but the rest they liked having a click. And that was my first gig having to play the whole oh, show yeah. click too. How was uh, that? Fine or was it? It weird? was fine. It's totally fine. You know, and that was a great uh, learning experience for me too, actually. And working on having in-ears, like I'd never done a gig with in-ears. Yeah. It's an adjustment, right? Like it, it's not a, for some people, it's a huge nightmare too. Like it doesn't translate well, but was it easy yeah. enough for you to just jump in and do that? Kind of was. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's helped my, it saved my hearing a little bit, I'm sure. But yeah. uh, it was definitely an adjustment. It was yeah. kind of, it was kind of odd, <laughs> yeah. especially like going and, you know, playing like these were my first this is my first arena tour, you know, playing big arenas, headlining arenas. Yeah. And uh, so getting up there for the first time on an arena stage and playing the show and you can't really hear the audience or, you know, like, you know, what's the, the, the stage sound, the live, you know, guitar, and all the amps were like under the stage and everything it was like one of those things. And uh, so that was a completely, completely different experience for me. I was used to rock bands kind of thrashing it out and have shitty monitors and you just go, okay, how do we do, you know? But, uh, 
was it an adjustment for like how you actually physically played, like the amount, like how hard you played and how you projected and things like that? Was that something that yeah. changed when you started playing in places that size? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was. It definitely, I had to adjust a little bit. They wanted it to rock. Like this was their. Okay. They had done the Rick. Rub it was the Rick Rubin record. With okay. Where they had Chad Smith played drums on the record and like. Right. They were just into this, like, we are a rock band now. We are going to rock, you know? Okay. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I can rock out. And so they still, I still was kind of, you know, I had to hit pretty hard. You know, they wanted it to be pretty rocking. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Through the years, like, drum-wise, has your, has your setup evolved and changed? I guess, like, from gig to gig, it probably changes a little bit. But have you been pretty consistent as far as... Like the one thing that I notice is that your your physical presence is unusual. Like you're you're over the drums. I, I it looks like you've got them set up pretty low or something. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I do set up a little weird as far as like that kind of goes. My drums are set up low, and I sort of sit high. Yeah. Um, which I didn't even realize was weird until somebody, oh, really? you know. So people started pointing it out like, wow, you sit really high and your drums are so low. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was. <laughs> was that something that evolved or did you always play like that? I, you know, it's funny. I think it did evolve because I, I tried like looking back at like pictures and stuff from like when I was younger. Yeah. And I think my stuff was higher up. It definitely was. Mm -hmm. And I've actually lit in the past year or two, I've started lowering my seat back down a little bit to get to. Okay, I don't know. That, yeah. Yeah. Just to level it out a little more. So my back isn't so like hunched over as much. And it's funny. I did a, I did a session with you. I don't know, three years ago or something like that down on music row and your tech showed up like, well, I was, I was setting up my pedal steel to play uh, and your tech showed up and set up your drums. And I was like, wow, that's weird. There's no way it like, I figured he was some guy that didn't know the setup or whatever. And then you walked in and sat down and it was like perfect perfect it, but it was <laughs> but from a non-drummer's perspective it was really weird seeing the kit set up that way it looked like there was no fucking way that it was going to work but it, it totally was your perfect setup i know it's so weird <laughs> studio stuff too like the way uh snare drum sounds will change through uh you know popularity or whatever like right like the fat the fat kind of deep snare sound you get more from like playing not playing rim shots or whatever, you know, like playing on the head. Yeah. And uh, I think I started lowering my snare down to kind of get that sound for, you know, for a lot of it. Not getting rim shots on it on every on yeah. every snare hit. Okay. So when you when you show up for a session, we've talked about all these bands that you're actually sort of in a band for, but like when you show up at a session, like when I did a session with you where you have no clue what the music's going to be or nobody does that that shows up and your tech shows up and brings in a kit for you to play, is there any consideration beforehand of what that kit's going to be? Like I'd imagine you've got in Cartage, you've probably got a bunch of different options or whatever. Uh, how do you just how do you make those decisions? Um, well, I just have well now I have like two different kits that go to every session. I'll have like a a regular regular kit or whatever that's like uh, it's pretty standard sizes, you know, like twenty two inch yeah. kick, twenty or thirteen inch tom and a sixteen inch floor tom, and then I have the smaller smaller drums. 
and I have some drums with no bottom heads now and all kinds of, you know. Do you get into those details with the producer beforehand or do you just kind of like guess and no yeah i mean most of the time as you know like the producers will not you don't talk much about what's going to happen on you don't know a whole lot about what the session's going to be or what the music is at all until you get there yeah you kind of just have your drum paradise does my cartage and i just have them bring everything now okay (laughs) what's the smaller kit you're talking about what are the sizes of that kit uh that's like a 12 uh 12, 12 inch tom 20 inch kick drum, 14 oh, inch is? floor top. Okay. So it is it's not like that a... much smaller, but a little smaller. It's more like jazzier kind of kid or whatever. Um, Are there any other unusual aspects to your studio, general studio setup? Uh, I mean, sometimes I'll bring in like some random, uh, like I'll, I've been known to use trash can lids or like uh, wash tubs or different kind of uh, like big uh decorative metal <laughs> plates or whatever that <laughs> just kind of have a cool sound or yeah stuff that I, i'll buy at like goodwill little little trinkets or things to hit on that sound kind of cool yeah that sort of stuff co- goes in and out of i don't know it's like it's not very often that you get to use that stuff more be, maybe more on like americana type sessions they want that kind of album sort of- rather than rather than a two song session or whatever yeah, for yeah, for, for mainstream, you know, like country session or something, you're you're not going to end up using that kind of stuff too often. Yeah. Um, but if somebody's making more of like an artsy kind of Americana type record, with the with the Cheryl Crow gig, you mentioned that, so that's been like your main gig for the last ten whatever years. I saw you guys. I was playing up in Quebec City, and I saw you guys playing. I think you were opening for Brad Paisley, or it was like a double bill with Brad Paisley or something, oh, and. Yeah. Um, I didn't know Oddly at the time. I know Oddly a little bit and Jen, I know Jen a a bit now and stuff, but I didn't know anyone then, but it really struck me that you guys seemed like a band. Like it didn't seem like a bunch of hired guns up there that were disconnected or anything. It seemed like a full on band. Is that something that she instills in you guys or was it just like a natural thing? We were a band. I mean, we, uh, Oddly and I got the Dixie Chicks gig at the same time. Oh, he was in the band at the same time. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. where we met. And um, and right from then on, like we oddly and I've been touring together since then, since two thousand six. Right. Like okay. in all, like and he did, he did this tour for Jacob's solo first solo album. We did that together, and then uh, tons of stuff locally uh, we've done together. We, I mean, when I moved here in two thousand seven. Um, we were playing together at the old family wash, like all the time. We did a thing called Sons of Zevon, where we would do all these cover tunes and different people would come in and sing and play. And, um, so we've just, we became a band and Jen was on all those things as well. Yep. And, um, and Robert, our bass player, Robert Kearns, he and Oddly had a band called Cry of Love together. Robert has been part of the whole, you know, just, just tons of stuff around Nashville, you know, in the scene. Yep. And then Peter, Peter actually from, from Cheryl's band, Peter Stroud, um, he's been her band leader for like 20 plus years now. Mm -hmm. Um, We put together a band called Big Hat where it was um, Keith Gaddis, who's a Nashville 
yeah. singer songwriter from Texas originally, but um, who Audley and I and Jen played with on and off for years. Mm-hmm. And Robert played bass. And this guy, Ike Stubblefield, played um, keys in that band. Jen was not in, in Big Hat. But, um, so we had a band that we went and recorded uh, some songs, actually, with Nick Didia, who was Brendan O'Brien's engineer. Oh, okay. Peter, Peter's an Atlanta guy. Peter was, really, was, good, was good pals with uh, Brendan and all that, that whole crew down there. So we went, went down and recorded songs and tried to get this band going sort of we never ended up playing any gigs (laughs) (laughs) and so during that time uh cheryl decided that she wanted she would prefer to have a nashville based touring band okay um, just to make it easier for her uh touring wise because her guys were kind of all spread out and um peter was like well we have this band if you're interested in, in trying these guys out, you know, and, take them uh, off. Yeah. And that worked out. Jen, Jen ended up joining, uh, like a year later. Okay. There was a different keyboard player for a while yep. from the last incarnation of her band. How important is it to you finding a bass player that you, I mean, obviously like you want a bass player that you lock in with, but are there times where that's like kind of a deal breaker or like that you found yourself, uh, in a situation where you're like, this guy is, I can, I can jive with this guy. Uh, I mean, I've been really fortunate. It's like almost almost every band I've been in or every situation, it's like super high level of musicianship and high level of just people, you know, really great people. Yeah. So I have had, very very seldom have i and on any instrument in any situation you know it's it's pretty rare when i've been like oh that guy this guy sucks or whatever you know (laughs) i've just been really seriously i've been super fortunate to to be in most situations where it's like everybody's good in this band you know every every almost that is really fortunate actually that doesn't happen to everybody and that's cool yeah and in nashville i mean it's just like there's so many incredible musicians yes. here yeah. that it's hard to go wrong, really. Right. I mean, there's guys that, you know, it just comes down to personality and stuff. Like, the guy can be a, the most incredible bass player, but maybe we don't get along as we don't gel personality-wise right away or something. Or yep. For the most part, I have not had any issues musically with people where I go like, this guy's this guy. <laughs> You know, you know, it's usually me going like, I suck. You know, I'm going like, I can't, I can't hang with these guys. I'm not good enough to be right. this, this, this group of people. Well, so you guys all like grouped up, got the gig with Cheryl Crow and was she directive at all about what she wanted? And like, she's a pretty kick-ass drummer herself, right? She's not a drummer. It's the one instrument. I thought she played drums. No. Oh, it's okay. So, it's shocking, right? Because, and she always says, like, I wish I could play drums. And I know she could if she really, I've seen her recently. She's done a couple of videos where she'll sit down and she was playing like kick drum and maybe snare and tambo and stuff on some of those lockdown videos or whatever. But no, she's, she's okay. not. Somebody she's told not, me she was, that she'd bought up a bunch of those rolling bomber kits that are, that she's are got, so. Yeah, she's got a couple of bomber kits and then she's bought a bunch of the, she just loves the art of those. She, okay. That, 
like the beautiful craftsmanship. She's really into yeah. like antiques and that kind of that yeah. style, that look. And so she bought a bunch of those old bass drums that had those painted drum heads and stuff too, yeah. the scenery on them and all that. And Clay, my old tech, um, he helped her acquire a bunch of those and because like, he's into the big antique scene and he's a drum collector and she is an admirer of that of the craftsmanship of that kind of stuff yeah yeah and okay. just great old instruments she has a huge collection of of guitars and and uh basses and keyboards she's got everything yeah you know, she's she loves that stuff so has she used all you guys on all her recordings since then uh she has yeah i mean we've all been on different recordings since since we've been in the band I mean, maybe not like full records like not even i have been on like her last record she made uh threads the big it was a big uh sort of collaborative project with a bunch of different singers and artists who she's been pals with or has done they or admired through the years steve jordan she brought steve in to produce that not only because he's incredible, but uh, because he is friends with everyone. You know, he knows everybody in the bit. He's played with everybody and yeah. he is good at, he was very good at bringing everybody together to get the, those situations. I, I played on like three or four tracks on that or whatever. So and I had, you know, the chance to work with Steve Jordan and have how him was, produce. How was that? Incredible. He's so, yeah. I mean, he's always been a hero of mine. I've seen him play with Keith Richards and the Wino. That's, you know, uh, I've just, I just love his drumming. I love his whole thing. He's one of the smartest guys. He's like an encyclopedia of, of Groove. American music. And was he directive about your drumming at all? Or was he just like, you're the drummer? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, but not, not, not overbearing at all, or, you know, nothing, nothing. He, you know, I think he is, he was super respectful and just really cool and wanted me to just play and be comfy and just like, you know, yeah. um, just like any good producer wants out of the people that come in and play, you know, so yeah, he, he, knows, he knows what he's doing. And yeah, it was, it was so cool. Just so he's like Amazing. a really great dude. Yeah. Yeah. And he's so smart. And, and awesome to be around. Is there, a, uh, for someone like you that's had such a great career so far and you're still young enough to have lots ahead, like, do you have, do you have a, a particular moment or two either in the studio or, or live that are like really stick out as highlights for you musically or just like where you're looking around going, how the hell did I get here? Man, I've had a bunch of those actually. How was playing with Willie Weeks? That was incredible. Willie's <laughs> he's a monster. Yeah. And again, one of the sweetest people on earth. So kind and just so great at his instrument. There's no question about anything. You know, it's just kind of you don't have to talk about anything. You just kind of just play and then you just yeah. then you just talk about regular life and you know, right. it's like a nice, nice normal hang. We actually got to do something really cool together, um, which was a huge highlight for me on those um, the Skyville live shows that they were doing from Nashville for a while, yep. uh, where they would bring in different people to, uh, it was like a- Is that the uh, thing you did with Billy Gibbons? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so that was the highlight. I mean, and Willie was on that. Oh, I man. did two, two episodes with Billy. The first one, Willie was on. Second one, uh, Steve Mackey, another great bass player was on. But uh, to do that with Willie, yeah, that was, 
It was just incredible, man. Were those just like thrown together or like, did you know Billy Gibbons? Had you played with him before? No, I had not known him. This, the, you know, the producer of the show and I set up who was going to be on the show and, you yeah. know, um, Kenny Greenberg. It was Wally Wilson is the producer of the show. He was a songwriter and, and, uh, and producer, music producer guy, Nashville dude. He and Kenny Greenberg would kind of put the bands together and, and the, the artists. I guess Chad Cromwell had been doing the initial bunch of those um, shows and he couldn't make a few of them because he was out touring with Neil Young or something. And uh, so Kenny, Kenny called me to come and do it. And I got to be on some of the really cool ones. It was like, I did the Billy Gibbons ones. It was Dr. John one. Oh, man. Uh, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. That was incredible. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's crazy. How yeah. was that? Did you get, did he hang with him at all? Uh, only for a second. We said, you know, got to say hello to him and stuff. Yeah. And got to play with him. I mean, yeah. we did a whole lot of shaking going on with him. Oh, it was, man. it was unreal. I was like. That's bananas. It was totally insane. Totally yeah. insane. The musicians and the bands on that thing and the artists they had on that, those were pretty special. And also there was another, Don Was puts together uh, some really cool things for this company called Blackbird Productions out of New York. And I got to play on a couple of those. One at Bridgestone they did was uh, a tribute to Chris Christopherson. Okay. And that was a whole bunch of different, insanely is that a situation where you're in a house band with Don house, playing bass? House and... band, yeah. Like, you know, playing with like Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson at the same time. You know, these kinds of things where you're like, what is Heavy. happening right now? I can't believe I'm doing this. Like, yeah. So incredible. Um, and and then we did an Emmy Lou Harris one as well. Amazing. Yeah. A bunch of different great artists on that. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of pressure. You got you to gotta be great. But, uh, you know, it's so fun. It's really yeah. thrilling. I won't take up more of your time. I I, I really appreciate you. Oh, thanks in. for having me. Yeah, this is really cool. I love doing this kind of stuff. So. Are you in town now for a while or do, are you guys like actively touring all the time right now? Or what's for, the... For, no, like we only, we end up doing like two or three gigs a month usually. Okay. Yeah. During the school year. Um, and then That's summertime. kind of a nice amount of... Uh, it's great. Hey, okay. yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a really, it's a perfect schedule for me and my family. And, yeah. And just for work in Nashville. And, so um, are you able to, like, you, you don't get into that situation then when people are like, oh, well, he's with Sheryl Crow. He's gone all the time. And so you miss out on stuff. Like, people know that you're around. Is is that ever a problem for you? That hasn't been too much of a problem just because the people, there's only a small, there's only a handful of producers that I'll kind of work with at one time during, you know, like for yeah. a number of years or whatever it is. So they'll always ask, you know, they'll yeah. still, you know, their production coordinators or whoever will always check in and say, Hey, we have the session come up and you're around. And so, yeah, so it hasn't, hasn't been, they, and all the guys I work with pretty much know that I'm around more than, more than you would think. Yeah. More than you would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, I'll yep. talk to you in a little bit. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Thanks, Fred. Okay. All See right. You, take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was great to talk to Fred. 
And I'll be back in a couple weeks for another groovy episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Over and out. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.